from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and good evening. Welcome to another edition of Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, 26 years after apartheid, Cape Town and indeed South Africa remains deeply divided along race and class lines. It's clear that state-subsidized housing has done little to redress spatial apartheid, with housing delivery failing to keep pace with a considerable backlog. This has led to a housing crisis, in terms of which hundreds of thousands of poor and working class families have been forced to live in peripheral townships, backyard shacks and informal settlements. These poor living conditions, coupled with high rates of unemployment, trap the poor and working class in a cycle of poverty. In light of this, a group of civil society organizations and academics have urged President Cyril Ramaphosa to immediately release three large, well-located and vacant military sites in Cape Town for the development of low-income housing. In his address to the nation on 20th 20th April, President Cyril Ramaphosa in fact said, and I quote, There can be no greater injustice than a society where some live in comfort and plenty, while others struggle at the margins to survive with little or nothing at all. Nowhere is this injustice clearer than in access to land and housing. So why is the state not using well-located urban land, which it owns, to house people in this time of crisis? Is this feasible? And if not, why not? Well, that's our burning issue tonight. We'll have a few guests on this evening. And we'll, uh, of course, we have contacted the Department of Public Works and Human Settlements. We did receive a voice note from the spokesperson of the Minister, Patricia DeLille. But let's get into the topic with our guests and hear from them what they have to say on this. Our first guest that we'll welcome to the show is Adi Kumar, Executive Director of the Development Action Group. Adi, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Thanks, Azid, for having me on the show. And we also have Charlton Zeevogel, Managing Director of the Community Organization Resource Center. Charlton, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening, Yazid. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, for the sake of our listeners, let's first find out more about the organizations briefly. Adi, can you tell our listeners what the Development Action Group is and what you aim to achieve? So, DAG is an organization that was founded in 1986. And the aim of the organization was to provide various forms of support to community-based organizations. Obviously, during apartheid, the main aim was to resist the apartheid spatial planning. But since then, the the main aim of the organization has been to enable different community networks to build housing projects. So, for instance, through the people's housing process for affordable housing in the inner cities, release of state land. So anything to do with land and housing rights has been the main uh, aim of the organization and mission of the organization. Thank you. And uh, let's hear from Shalton. Can you tell us what is the Community Organization Resource Center? 
Thanks, Aziz. Yes, we were established in 2000. Um, we're a support NGO that looks to support communities willing, willing and able to help themselves. The way we deliver the support is through two social movements, the Federation of the Urban and Rural Poor, Fed Up for short, and the Informal Settlement Network. Um, our program extends across the country. We have a focus on, um, um, on particular communities that are living inside of informal settlements. Um, our methodology is to um, assist those communities to pursue their own development agenda um, by trying to um, build meaningful partnership with governments to try and achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. Now, guys, I must say that today I had to drive all the way to Table, uh, it's Table Bay Mall. It's, it's quite far. It's, it's from where I am, at least. It's quite a distance. And I must say that while driving there, I drove past a number of informal settlements and it felt like people are living so far and removed from, from resources and services and so on. Um, and yet, there are uh, claims by various organizations or calls, sorry, from various organizations that uh, a local government should use land which it owns that is well located, particularly now focusing on the vacant military sites in Cape Town for the development of low income housing. So tell us, what is your position? Let's start with, with the development action group. Adi, what is your position on this as an organization? So, yes, maybe to start exactly where you started. So, in 1994, there were roughly about 300 informal settlements. And the demand for land has grown so much that today we have roughly about 2,700 informal settlements nationally. And so this is obviously compounded not just nationally, but also manifested itself in Cape Town. Same can be said about the housing program. I mean, uh, South Africa has one of the most progressive constitutions in terms of housing rights. And so far, government claims to have delivered anywhere between 3.7 to 4 million housing opportunities for the poor, which is by far very significant and, and really applaudable. But despite all of these things, part of the big issue has really been that most of these developments have been on cheap land on the periphery of the city. And you would know as you drove through through various parts of Cape Town that living on the periphery generally means that you have no access to amenities, you know, poor access to health facilities, education facilities, and general economic opportunities. And so in this particular debate, the issue of land is absolutely central and, and highly politicized because it is really about the location of where these lands are located. Now, very often when we speak to government institutions and so on, the general response, whether it's backyard issues or whether it's related to informal settlements or generally people living in overcrowded conditions, the, the core of the argument is that we don't have enough land. And yes, that land, the amount of land availability is a finite resource. It's restricted and so on. But when you drive around and you see large parcels of vacant land that the state owns, uh, it just feels completely unfair and unconstitutional. So to give you an example, in, in 1991, our first publication as an organization spoke about the release of these three uh, parcels of land uh, owned by the Defense Forces. And even the first IDPs in the country, uh, particularly relating to the Cape Town broader area to the metro, spoke about the release of these lands. So the big question is, why are these lands not, land not being released, particularly in the context of COVID-19? And how can they be used as a response to uh, to the crisis that we face in terms of COVID-19 and the pandemic? Okay. And let's get to Shelton. What is your organization's take on particularly the underused military sites in Cape Town? And you are welcome, of course, to mention other sites that you believe the city should also release for low-income housing. 
um, sectors. Is, um, I think Adi hit the nail on the head. Um, uh, when we look across the city of Cape Town, we really see that um, if you were to look at, at the map, you'd, you'd see that most of the informal settlements are located in the southeast quadrant. Um, we know that backyarders are usually linked to to our own townships on the Cape Flats. And may, in all of these cases, the opportunity is to get to um, economic activity, to access services that are essential, um, becomes problematic for people living in, in, in these kinds of, of settlements. Um, so our stance is really about trying to, to, to pressurize government to release um, these well-located pieces of land. Um, so yes, there are these three sites that we speak about, but on top of that, you might even know that in some cases, um, there are informal settlements um, located on, on, on city-owned, um, government-owned land that's, that, that's also well-located. And often what we tend to push for is this idea that you, you, you can try and get upgrading happening in those spaces as well. Um, and the main aim here, the main push is to, is to stop this, this forever um, moving of the poor to the periphery where you find um, huge sums of money get spent um, on, on public transport and then you have a public transport system that, that, that isn't able um, to cope as well um, with the needs of the people. So it's really about trying to bring some, 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 um, some balance to the way the city is structured and to also counter the spatial, um, the spatial inequality that's persisted um, since the end of the process. Okay. And what has the city been saying to you? I'm, I'd like to know what, what they say to you when you tell them that this land should be made available for low-income housing. So, I, I don't think this, so my view at least is that I don't think the city or the province or, or the national department would dispute uh, that, that this is a cent- land is a central issue and that these three parcels are critical if we have to address the housing crisis. I do not think that anybody will dispute it. I think the city's kind of general response has really been around the social housing projects that have been pipelined in the past, particularly in the inner city. And uh, we recently saw a, a press statement from the councillor saying, you know, the Pine Road uh, social housing project is expected to go in in the first quarter or the second quarter of next year. So I think the city's response while trying to negotiate with the national department has really been focusing on its own parcels of land and provincial land uh, to release for social housing. But, I mean, while the call is for these three big military parcels, it is a general call for state to prioritize its own assets for housing. I think that's the, that's the core of the call. So all the legal uh, legal research and the legal impediments that we've developed, uh, the core ideas that we've developed, are on a basis that similar things could be applied to a city-owned land or to a provincial-owned land so that these get prioritized as a matter of urgency given the crisis that we face. Mm-hmm. Now, also when it comes to people on the ground, I mean, we need to understand the situation because it feels like in Cape Town, there are just more and more informal settlements. You mentioned something like over 2,000 informal settlements around the country. Um, as a Cape Townian, as someone born here, whenever I drive around, and as a journalist, I do move around in the city quite a lot, I tend to see more and more informal settlements. Now, is this correct or is this just my eyes telling me something else? Uh, yeah, see, that, that is correct. There, there's definitely a growth that's, that's happening. Um, so depending on, on how we look at the, at, at, 
at the informal settlements in, in Cape Town. Uh, even the city, uh, I think, will, will now agree that uh, the number of settlements um, is already over 300. Um, so this is it's not something that you're imagining. Um, there's definitely growth happening, and it's happening across various parts of the city. Mm-hmm. Any any input on that from you? Yeah. Yeah, just to add to that, so I think one of the things that Charlton also brings up, so yes, it's grown, but I think it's important also to underline uh, the reason why this growth is happening. And there are two quite straightforward answers to that particular question. The demand for housing is so high and the supply is just too little. Uh, the, the problem is that no matter how fast uh, government delivers, it's not going to be able to keep up with the demand. And the, and the supply side, which is where government has been providing houses, has, has over the years been declining for multiple reasons, some of it due to kind of availability of land, community politics, resources, and so on. So I think that's, been, that's, a, that's a huge impediment in being able to kind of reach the demand that, that's there out in the market. The mm. second reason, which I think is, is, is really complicated, is how to, how to prioritize the interlinked issues so COVID-19 has definitely shown that, you know, a housing program that doesn't address the backyard issues, that doesn't address people living in, you know, poor conditions and overcrowded conditions on one earth, like, you know, six, eight families living in, in one earth in, in, in Mitchell's Plain. Like, unless we address those particular issues, the informal settlements and backyarders are almost interconnected to each other. And this requires a, a very serious rethink of how we deliver housing from the public sector perspective. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about resources and, you know, something that, um, and our listeners, by the way, you are always welcome to participate on the show. Um, if I can just read out the numbers, the WhatsApp numbers and the phone number, the WhatsApp number is 082 that is 082-991-3913. The in-studio number to phone is 021-442-3530. That is 021-442-3530. You know, I mean, listeners uh, might say or might wonder, you know, um, in fact, here, let me just see what they are, what people are saying on the WhatsApp line. Um, there are some messages coming through. I'll get to them now. Um, you know, somebody, I've had this kind of show before uh, on this kind of topic on burning issue before, and people wanted to know who, how, is government able to pay for all of these houses that are needed? Because some people obviously they take out bonds and buy houses and so on, and they kind of like wonder, well, what are the, what is the tax going for, you know? So the question of resources, that's really what I'm coming to as well. You know, who's paying for this ultimately? It's tax money. Yeah, so I mean, very briefly, so there are different housing programs at the moment. And obviously there's the the RDP, BNG, most common style of housing that we all know. But given the recent uh, press release by the National Minister, it does seem like there there is a significant role back of that particular program and the state is going to more and more build a service site with, you know, uh, a sanitation unit and access to water and so on for people to be able to develop their own houses. And I think some of the rationale behind that is that there just isn't enough resources to be able to build the number of houses that are needed to deal with the housing backlog. So I think that's the kind of one resource question. The other housing programs that exist, obviously the one... uh, 
that that would be extremely important in cases like this would be the social housing model, which would really be a rental housing model in the inner city, which brings people close to economic opportunities and the rents are highly subsidized. So in that sense, you could be living in the inner city and paying, you know, 2,000 rand to live, you know, smack in the middle of Woodstock and Salt River, for instance. And then the third program, for instance, which is called the FLIS, uh, which allows people to, uh, to take a bond out from a bank, but also access some form of subsidy from the government. I think these three finance mechanisms would, would perhaps be the most appropriate that would apply uh, in, in any of these instances. Uh, obviously, none of these are very straightforward paths, uh, and many people have tried and tested many of these paths. It's complicated, and there's bureaucracy, and it's difficult to access. And, and again, the demand is high, so there's a lot of competition to get to the limited resources that's available. And leave the rest of the to take on. Yeah, maybe just to add to what Adis just um, mentioned yesterday, there is also the, uh, I think we started off by saying that land is central to this discussion, right? And, um, and in, our, in our submission, um, we make a strong case for um, the use of this land for various typologies, different scenarios. One of the things that's, that's, um, that we've been working on for quite a number of years is this idea of people being able to, to also invest themselves. Um, and what we found is that when there is a degree of security in terms of tenure security, people are able to bring their own resources to the party as well. Um, I think we've, we've also witnessed this um, across the city of Cape Town when it comes to backyard. Is that when, when they are given the opportunity to, to construct a, a space that, that they feel will be theirs, they, they, they're willing to invest as well. So I think we, we all face this, this scenario that there, there might not be enough resources. And I think, um, like Adi mentioned, uh, the statement from the minister is also pointing to the bigger issue that the overall fiscus won't be able to continue rolling out free housing. And it's important for us to explore these other options um, where we try to activate the opportunities for people to do softball, but also explore these models that, um, that Adi mentioned. Um, as difficult as they are, but there are options on the table. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the government, the government obviously would um, say that uh, people should, uh, you know, follow, if I can say the law, that there is a protocol, there is a list and so on. But the amount or the sheer need in terms of the amount of South Africans that would essentially be literally out in the streets, if not in a shack on some government-owned land, is obviously millions, right? We know this. We live in a poor country. Now, in terms of monitoring government's rollout, how are you guys doing that? Charlton, you want to go ahead? Um, so, maybe I think one of the things, uh, and, and well, I have to take this in pieces, right? So, um, I think that the issue that you highlighted yesterday about the millions of people that are currently um, situated in informal settlements, whether it be backyard shacks or inside the settlements that we know, they're already um, one of the big issues has been this thing about access to basic services, right? And that's something that um, that organizations like ourselves, like DAG and various other civil organizations have been working hard to already just try and get a grasp on government spending when it comes to um, budgets related to um, water and sanitation provision and, 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 and electricity. Um, so that's one of the mechanisms where we're trying to stay on top of it and to say, okay, we are getting a, a, a better grasp of the problem. 
um, and, and we are trying to see how these resources can be targeted more effectively. Part of that process is to, is to really get the very communities that we are speaking about involved as well in, in, in ensuring that these, um, that the, the services and the levels that are required are, are, are there, and if they're not there, they're using this in the correct spaces. So that speaks to, to one of the avenues, right? Um, when it comes to this um, particular submission, um, we have spoken a little bit about some of the monitoring and evaluation component that, that would need to happen in an instance like this, because um, uh, the submission that, that we that we've put on the table is speaking about something like over 60,000 um, opportunities for, for some sort of housing to happen. Um, but at the core of this process um, uh, is a, a participatory um, uh, deeply participatory process encouraging the community in involvement at all levels. And, and that's part of the process where we have to really build in this accountability as we move along. Um, I'll let Adi come in as well. Yeah, I think Charlton has, uh, has said appropriately in terms of both the basic services side and I mean, on the accountability and, and monitoring of these things, Yazid, the big issue is uh, the state has to be responsive enough to take in data from civil society and, and act on it. And I think we've seen that government, unfortunately, and it's not just the city, it's kind of from national down to, to the city, it's become very stiff. And, and as a result, you know, we have both uh, kind of an unresponsive state that isn't able to kind of adapt to changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, especially on the housing side, but also we have an implementation problem and, you know, we get lots of commitments to, to build housing projects, social housing projects. I've been involved in informal settlement upgrading projects with Charlton that started a decade ago and still haven't broken ground. So all these things obviously are very disappointing, you know, because time and energy is, is spent in building capacity. Mm -hmm. People, especially citizens living in these particular informal settlements, yeah. they help monitor progress. But it doesn't uh, materialize into 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 dignity, into housing, into the land rights, and all of those. Thank you so much for that. And with that, we'll take a break for the Maghrib Salah. And when we come back, we continue this conversation on whether the city of Cape Town should make, and in fact local, that's local government, of course, you're also talking about national and provision, provi provincial government, on what the government should do to make state land available to low-cost housing. Stay tuned after Maghrib. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good evening. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, this week, a group of civil society organizations and academics urged President Cyril Ramaphosa to immediately release three large, well-located and vacant or underused military sites in Cape Town for the development of low-cost housing. And that's what we are focusing on tonight. The three pieces of nationally owned land, Aesterplad, Wingfield, Field and Youngsfield have the potential to combat Cape Town's affordable housing crisis and alleviate the most harmful effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has driven many into homelessness, according to the various organizations. And they say by releasing the sites, the national government could make room for up to 67,000 low-income households in Cape Town, answering a decades-long call on national government to address the gross spatial inequalities in the city. So now we are 
are going to continue the conversation with our guest, Charlton Zivogel, the managing director of the community organization Resource Center. Uh, and of course, we also now want to welcome our guest from the provincial government. We welcome Tertius Simmers, the MEC for Human Settlements at the Western Cape Province uh, government. Uh, Tertius, good evening. Welcome to Burning Issue. Okay, we have Shalton. Shalton, do we have you? Shalton, do we have you online? Hi there. Uh, sorry, man, the line was very bad. Um, I, I didn't catch up you. Okay, it's um, not a problem. Um, we just re- we're just starting the show again after the Maghrib uh, prayers. So we're just talking about the statement that a number of civil society organizations had issued this week saying that the you know that three pieces of nationally owned land particularly the military sites uh, should be uh, released for low income housing and uh, do we have the uh, MEC for human settlements back online let's check we are also trying to get him so uh, of course I mean I'm just going to look at now the organizations that support the school it's yourselves the community organization resource center the development action group legal resources center and Ndifuna Ukwazi so do we have MEC Tertius Simmers hi is this MEC Tertius Simmers uh, good evening good evening to the voice of the Cape listeners Hi, good evening. Your line is is, is quite um, bad. We're getting a bit of feedback. Um, I think can you can you hear me now better? Yeah, we can hear you now clearly. So, okay, cool. so Dushis, did you hear what I, the the intro that I had read about the civil society organisations calling on nationally owned military, uh, you know, uh, sites to be released for low income housing? Yes, I did hear your intro, and remember that the, the premier and myself, we've been doing a similar request in September last year. So we actually welcome the request as well because given the growing need of our suitable, developable land in the metropole area of Western Cape, which is the city of Cape Town, I think it's now needed more than ever. Okay. And what do you make of the organization saying that, uh, you know, even... Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they believe that 67,000 low-income house uh, homes could be built. Do you think that that well, is possible? I mean, you're a government person. You work with planning and all these things. Well, I, I should say the specific parcels of land which the, the civil society organizations have identified can yield in excess of the 67,000 which they refer to as depending on the densification levels on the parcels of land. And wh- when you talk to national government, I mean, at that level, what, what do they say to you? I remember uh, in September last year, I actually initiated on the 14th of September uh, op-ed after writing numerous letters to the National Minister of Transport and Public Works, who's the custodian of all state-owned land uh, in, in provinces, requesting a, you know, the, for, for many, many years, even when she used to be the city of Cape Town mayor, uh, that, you know, we achieve and identify these three, which is Kulenburg, Oosterplaat, Wingfield, and the Daniel and the Anfield land as suitable sites where we can really shape new communities. We can we can really redress the legacy of apartheid spatial planning, and these parcels of land are vast. 
developable. They are near. They, they are near uh, job opportunities. They are on, on all your your main transport corridor lines. So, what better suitable land can can one actually ask for? Because even our studies show that if you if you look at various uh, densification levels, the 67,000 housing opportunities can can even be a lot more more than that. Okay, and what role would the provincial government play in all of this? Because the organizations are calling on national government to release the military sites for low-income housing. Would the provincial government be involved in a project like this, and how? Well, of course, the provincial department uh, will, will be part of that, because remember, um, the HDA, which is the humans, uh, the, which is the developmental arm, which keeps all uh, land as custodianship, which we get from, from, from the national department or any other form of land which is identified for human settlements development. Uh, and then obviously utilizing the local sphere of government, in this case the city of Cape Town, because there's certain um, legislative processes that resorts within the sphere of local government, then there's also that which resorts within with the ambit of provincial government and my department, but also my sister department, which is local government and developmental planning. So we do have a massive role to play. And I mean, one such example outside of the city of Cape Town, where all three spheres are working together, is actually the Trans-Ex Catalytic Project. But once again, all three spheres do need to work together to ensure that they execute their specific mandate when it comes to human settlement development. So we have a key role to play. Uh, and... Uh, once again, that's why we welcome this request by the civil society because I think a fourth partner moving into the future, which is something, which is something that we've learned through COVID-19, uh, focusing on de-identification and reblocking, is actually that your civil society also plays a key role in engaging the communities which you ultimately seek to integrate through such catalytic projects. Yeah. Now, I just want to take the uh, the chance also to say that we did invite the uh, national minister um, for the Department of Public Works and Human Settlements. Uh, she could not attend, but we have a spokesperson who has sent through a, uh, a statement that I'm just going to play now. No problem. Minister DeLille will set up a meeting with the stakeholders in next week to discuss the issues. Minister DeLille has also committed to discussing government's land reform and redistribution program with the stakeholders. And thereafter, she will engage them on a regular basis. So that was the spokesperson, Zara Nicholson, for the minister, Patricia DeLille. And, of course, it's just to say that the minister has acknowledged the statement that the civil society organizations have issued. She seems willing and interested to meet with them. But while we've got the provincial government on the line, I thought it would be super important for us, of course, to understand as well what the province is doing and how the province is addressing the housing crisis in our Western Cape province. Would you mind sharing any of that with us, Tertius? No, no, of course, of course not, because I know, you know, in the, in the past where we've engaged Minister DeLille, uh, the counter-argument has always been, but you also have land, why don't you use your land? So it's a good question, and I don't mind giving the facts, because once we empower our citizens and the listeners 
tonight with the facts they will understand why I'm why the provincial department and government in full support of what the 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 three organizations are requesting from the national department. Firstly, um we need to understand that not all land land is developable. Uh, even the land which is in the custodianship of the provincial government, and in our case, it, will, it is obviously the Department of Public Works, uh, and the land that we have made available or released pockets of land uh, across our province for human settlements development, and just, this is just in the city of Cape Town, it's 344.6 hectares. In our instances, it is all along the Southern Corridor Catalytic Project, and once again, this is a project and a program which is endorsed by the National Department of Human Settlements, my provincial department, but also the city of Cape Town. And by utilizing, because this is one of the large, big pockets of land that, that we as a, as a provincial department actually own in the, in the metropole area, uh, this uh, site will yield more than 15,376 housing opportunities, but we've gone a step further. Contractors have been appointed from our site for all the sites over these pockets of land, of which 2,000 houses have already been completed and handed over to date. And uh, because we, we seek to drive an integrated human settlement development approach in the city of Cape and also across the other non-metropole municipalities, the, these, uh, these uh, uh, sites focuses on mixed-use development, which means they focus on fully subsidized houses, on first houses or gap the housing as certain uh, segments of the community call them. We have segments of social housing and we're also now ex expediting, also focusing on deferred ownership models of housing on these sites. So in a nutshell, that is what my department is busy with in the city of Kirkland, also in the non-metropole area. So in Afrikaans, we say that you must put your money where your mouth is if you relate it. And we are physically doing that, but this is all the, develop, the, the human settlement, developable land, which we still own in the metropole. And there's another close to 200 hectares in the non-metro areas, which we are also busy developing. And this is excluding land which, uh, so the city of Cape Town and land which our non-metro municipalities are making available to the human settlements department in this province so we can actually expedite and accelerate the, the delivery of housing opportunities. The only partner missing here is the National Department of Transport and Public Works because they are the custodian of all nationally owned land in provinces. Okay. Now let's get some input also from Charlton, and he's the managing director of the Community Organization Resource Center, one of the organizations that made the call that uh, asking, you know, that the city, or rather the national government, sorry, should release underutilized military land. Charlton, what do you make so far of what uh, Tertius is saying around the Western Cape's role? You, of course, as an organization, you monitor national city and provincial government. Uh, do you have anything to say to what Tertius already has been saying on the radio? Uh, thanks, Asid. Um, good evening, MSC. It's um, a pleasure to be able to chat to you as well. Um, I think it was very positive and heartening to hear your opening remarks with regard to the submission we made. I think um, this is actually an opportunity where, where we, we're starting to speak the same language. Um, it's really useful to, to get this kind of support. Um, I think what's, what's important in some of the things that you raised, um, for example, this, this notion of the, 
of uh, intergovernmental um, collaboration. So the Cynthia's coming together, I think that's very important. Um, I'm very happy that you recognize the role that civil society can play. I think um, during this time of crisis in particular, we saw that um, the coming together and pooling of the resources really maximizes the impact. Um, I think with regards to the role that um, the Western Cape provincial government has played, um, uh, uh, this is a province that has reached out in certain areas, especially around human settlements, to work with civil society organizations to see how we can better tackle this issue. Um, uh, and I heard you mention also this, the, the, the Southern Corridor uh, project, for example, and that's, that's something that was supported by civil society organizations, one of which was mine. Um, and, and that was a good example of how um, communities could input into um, data collection processes that helped in the design of that very project. So it's very good to, to hear that you are supportive of this role. I, I think hearing also the, the voice note that came from the, um, the, the National Minister's um, spokesperson, uh, it sounds like she's ready to sit at the table. I think it would be um, super important for us to to join you guys and, um, and of course have a a united front and we sit down at the table because um, it's about time that we get this, this kind of thing moving and we mm-hmm. and we're definitely supporting supporting each other in this in this instance okay well it's great to know that everybody seems to be talking the same language and that there are conversations that are happening however the challenges remain and we still need to overcome the housing backlog when we come back after the ad break we'll get into the housing backlog we'll also look at some of the whatsapp messages listeners we do encourage you to send through your whatsapp messages to the number in studio it is 082-991-3913 that is 082-991-3913 you can also give us a call. The number is 021-442-3530. The Burning Issue. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, listeners are sending in through messages, talking, talking sorry, about their own experiences. And one listener says, why must houses be so expensive? Why does the government allow inferior homes to be built? There are tenders of enormous amounts to build these houses. Now, we've seen and heard of government contracts going sort of not that well, particularly now closer to home, even in District 6 with Phase 3, where a contractor there basically didn't finish the job, and then a new contractor had to implode. Can you maybe just help us listener understand or help us understand, you know, how it works that government-built houses can be of low quality as some people experience? In reality, I mean, one must acknowledge that uh, across uh, various projects uh, where province is is uh, a key role player, uh, that we have noticed uh, that sadly, you know, where there's uh, the issue of quality regarding construction, one needs to understand that the NHBRC was actually introduced to deal with the quality issues because as a provincial government, more so when you go through our supply chain processes, all our tender and procurement process and, and documentation is drawn up, taking well cognizance of the NHBRC as, as the body and the guidelines and so forth. But 
I do believe it's because the specific WhatsApp that you feel, or SMS you refer to refers to District 6 Phase 3. That is a city project. Uh, but what but what one can say is that we have uh, realized that certain contactors, unfortunately, uh, you know, they, they go through a tender process. It's an open and transparent process where uh, the normally the, the relevancy of government looks then if a specific uh, contactor who has now admitted a tender uh, comes in at a specific price because we need to understand the cost per unit which is given if it, if it stays subsidized has never increased over the last 10 years to be quite honest which is set at a maximum of 163,000 rand which uh, ultimately in certain instances exclude the, the provision of bulk services and in some instances include the provision of bulk services and many times where inferior quality does come into play is I believe where a, a specific developer or contactor has now one a, a tender through a, a, a process either through the city or which other relevant uh, relevancy of government deals with, uh, with a context in my case for, for provincial government and non-metro non municipalities. But I do say that as a provincial government, we do hold contactors accountable. Even the city of Cape Town does the same. They hold retention money. They impose penalties, and even ourselves, we impose penalties where contractors do not perform because part of a, 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 the contract which we sign with with contractors are actually performance guarantees that, that, that is needed. But ultimately, uh, what we have picked up is, sadly, in certain projects, and that not all your projects have inferior quality. It's, it's very, if you look at the total quantum of contracts, which is a provincial department, we, we, we do anything to with uh, uh, main contractors. It, it really is limited examples where there is inferior quality and where we have picked it up through the inspection process of this unit. It has been rectified and like I said, we do it. Uh, people who have retention money that we hold back from the contractor until such units meet our standards and quality, which, which we ultimately envision for our qualifying beneficiaries. Okay. Now, uh, I just want to come to another listener who raises a point about being on the housing database, and I'm not sure if one of our guests can talk to this question. The listener says, we have been on a housing database since 1987. We are pensioners. How does this government want us to build a house? We receive... We received 1,000 rand rental increase at the end of September. So this is someone who has been on a housing database. And of course, that is the main topic that we've discussed this evening, making land available for more government housing. And, and I mean, another question that will come up is, in fact, this question comes up now about access to a, 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 a government house. I don't know if it's still called an RDP house, Thurshus or, or, or Shelton. Um, but tell us, how does the housing database work? Is it at a national level, a provincial level, or a city level? And who keeps track of it? Well, from my side, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to, to, to the first part. Look, we, the provincial Department of Human Settlements, and as the minister, I'm the custodian of such, I ensure that all municipalities have uh, housing demand databases which they administer, I should, I should emphasize. But what we have picked up, and this is not just a new phenomenon, 
it is that certain databases are flawed, that it's something we acknowledge, uh, which makes it sometimes open to manipulation, which is why we've been engaging municipalities since last year, and we've even developed an integrated uh, housing demand database as a provincial department to integrate all municipalities. Now, there's only one municipality which is not part of that. We are busy engaging them, and that is the city of Cape Town, because we have sadly picked up uh, many flaws in the system and many uh, many uh, complaints like the individual who has just SMS or WhatsApp in to address certain matters. But what we've also uh, picked up is that, remember, if a person applied in 1987, as the example that you've given now, it is still your responsibility to go and update your, your contact details uh, as frequently as possible uh, should your details change or your address change, because many a times, Certain individuals were supposed to have benefited in the past, but because they could not be reached or traced due to the 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 outdated information that a specific municipality had in their housing demand database. Uh, sadly, then, you know, obviously we, we go to the next system, and that is why to ensure that we put this level of transparency and accountability together with our possible qualifying beneficiary into their hands, we actually developed, developed the app last, last year where you can register or even check your status on that, that app. We launched that just before COVID-19 struck, so it, we've also seen an increasing number of possible beneficiaries which do apply, and we have seen people that actually do upload their details. Where is a the frequency of the years that they've waited, which is on the system versus what they, 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 could, they could produce to us. So we have seen these here, uh, anomalies play itself out, but we also need to understand before the city of Cape Town became the uni city, there was the divisional council and the sub-council, well city council had, had various systems, so it's possible that through human error that certain individuals' details could not be, be possibly have been transferred to a proper functional system when the city became the uni city, but as a provincial department, that's why we have been engaging various communities since last year, building up to the app during verification drives that we were stopped in our tracks by COVID-19, but we are looking to, to restart the metro areas, which we haven't touched on yet, because we do have catalytic projects that is in the pipeline and is at the advanced stage. And I have made a commitment to communities that I do want to see the correct beneficiaries who have legally and patiently waited for the opportunity to get an opportunity. But I think tying into the, the second part of your question, uh, um, and you would have heard the, the National Minister announced the Rapid Land Release Program, which seeks to to accelerate the delivery of an housing opportunity through a service site. Now, as the provincial department, we are actually finalizing our, our enhanced service site product uh, uh, offering, which we are going to offer to beneficiaries. But we are doing it in different cohorts of income brackets up until 22,000 Rand. But once again, like I said earlier on, we do believe that the key stakeholder in this new possible way forward to accelerate housing opportunities to engage possible qualifying beneficiaries is our 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 NGO and uh, our NGO sector because many a times uh, they also have, have access to the funding sources which we can utilize together because irrespective of which way of government or if you're an NGO we all want to see a better life for all of our people and that is why all, all key stakeholders play a crucial role moving forward.
Okay, um, I'm going to ask uh, Charlton to respond as well. Um, I just want to say that another listener sent through a message, listener 4994 says, I've been on a housing waiting list since 2008. Will I be informed or should I go to the department? And then um, listener, okay, um, let's see who else is sending it. Then also, here's another listener, listener 2747, saying, I was on the housing list for over 20 years. Then we bought a house. My husband died and I lost the house. Now I don't qualify for another council house. I've been to the housing offices. Does just any response to that, um, listener? Well, the last listener, you see, the, the, the function of a qualifying beneficiary getting state assistance for housing use and the provision is within the Housing Act. You have to have not owned a, a house previously because the, the, the objective of, of the National Housing Act and the Housing Code is to actually assist those that have never owned a house. And it's also because we also seek to uh, redress the injustices of the past where many couldn't own a house or even buy a piece of land or own a house. So sadly, the individual who wrote that to you, unfortunately, that is why when, when, they go, when you go to the housing office, they will actually just tell, unfortunately, you can't. Uh, but there is other profiles that one can look into. So if um, perhaps the radio station can can forward me the details, there are other product variables which she might qualify for, which is outside of the normal, which is, for instance, social housing where you never own a house, but you actually physically uh, get a unit at a reduced rate. Uh, and then we can look into that matter. Then uh, the first uh, listener for double nine four, I think you said, was uh, that applied in 2008. Well, it depends on in which municipality you live because depending on the size of the housing backlog, certain municipalities are only looking at beneficiaries that are up until 2002-2003. So it all depends where the specific uh, municipality, if it's a city of Cape Town, where they are in a specific uh, year that, that, that they are actually seeking to assist, except where there is cases such as your elderly people and so forth, which will then get prioritized uh, for housing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Shelton, what do you make of the idea that NGOs and civil society should be also playing a role in in monitoring, uh, you know, whether people are getting ahead in the housing list? Um, thanks, Jesse. Uh, I think this is, this is one of those very complex and also very sad topics, right, because... Um, We've got a few examples, and I'm sure that there's literally thousands of this that we hear, and we've encountered this um, issue in, in various areas that we work. Um, I think the important thing to also note on top of this, because, um, you know, the thing that sparked this discussion is, is this issue of making that well-located land available, because I think the problem we face here is that the, the delivery is, is, is not making up to, to, to the demand, so it feels like you never really make a, dip, a dent into that list. So I think this issue of um, of looking citywide at all at all options with regards to land actually creating opportunities so that they can bite into this backlog can can help a little bit. Um, I also know that like you know when it comes to the the issue of qualification criteria, it's complex. We you know we sit on that three and a half thousand mark, um, and in a city like Cape Town, we we, we still have instances where people fall off the qualification criteria list because they, they might have moved, moved on and moved out of the 3,500 bracket. But the reality is that they're still missed in this 
um, no man's land where they, they and just in, just too much to, to not um, even think about making the list. But then at the same time, they earn too little to be able to access other opportunities. And I think um, the MEC mentioned that there are other programs. Um, Adi, my colleague who was on earlier, also spoke about the different opportunities that are available. But those opportunities cannot be maximized beyond the land. Um, and, and I think the big thing that we're talking about here is this well-located land, the opportunity to move people closer to where the economic opportunities are. Um, Yes, we as civil society organizations, we do get out there, we, do, we are involved in, in um, data gathering, which happens at the community level. Um, a lot of the studies that we, that we do, we actually ask these questions about qualification. And, uh, and oftentimes people, like, like some of the listeners and the people who in the they, they sort of figure that they, that they kind of, they don't qualify. So, um, because they have the sense of, you know, what some of the criteria is. Um, we found in a lot of cases that, um, that, uh, in, in the, where, where, where we've collected data on these issues, that um, uh, there's this income thing that, that's always linked to it. And, and you need to get a grasp on like how people survive it. And in the areas that we're talking about, informal settlements, backyarders, you actually find that the predominantly people are just surviving on the grants. Um, and so you'll find that there's lots of people that are qualifying, but they don't have many options to, to, for, a, for a pathway to a decent, to a decent place to, to live. Um, I must say, when it comes uh, to the back uh, to the backyarders, um, uh, they would say that they even have a bigger problem because often they they, they don't get seen enough, they don't get heard enough. Um, we work with various backyard networks across the city as well, and so you'll find that yes, there's the, the people that are on the on this list that have put their names down, but at the same time, there are families that are growing, um, and that's how we see the backyarders expanding. We see the the um, overcrowding happening, and the land, the land is a central component to this discussion. So, yes, we might be able to sort out the databases and get people now, you know, meet and orderly organized on that list, but the opportunities for, for accessing a, a decent shelter still needs to be created, and land is at the core of that. Okay. Well, I think also one thing that I would like to talk about after the break is just exactly who pays for public land and public housing because i think that's something that that we would also like to of course understand um and i think what's also very important is going to be to inform the public on how exactly for example if land had to be made available how that land would be used how exactly housing is built um in terms of uh, using the tax purse for that we'll get into that after the break So I think it's time for us to wrap up with Shelton. Um, Shelton, do you have any closing remarks? Because we want to get my Lucy Boy on as well. Do you have any closing remarks, Shelton? Yes. Um, thanks. Thanks again, Yashi, for this opportunity. It's also good to hear the inputs of the MEC. I, I think a big thing that I want to end off with is just to remind everyone about the submission that we made, the issue of the well-located land. 
um, the release of that. Um, really, it's about trying to break this, this poverty cycle. We've seen um, in Cape Town in particular, where uh, a lot of people would say it's a booming property market, but over time you'll find that the kind of investments, the kind of opportunities for people to own land that's, that's on the outskirts, that's further away from where all the amenities and facilities are, has meant today that, that they have not gained the same level of wealth as others who had the opportunity to be located in the more um, in the areas that were accessible to all the good facilities. And, and so the portions of land that we target in those really can be a massive game changer, not only just for trying to address this issue of potentially over 60-odd thousand opportunities for housing, but it speaks to a longer-term generational game-changer because there's an opportunity for a more a more real transfer of wealth in, in targeting those kinds of projects that are well-located. Thank you so I much. Thank you, Charlton, for joining us this evening on Burning Issue. Now, still with us is MEC Tertia Simmers. He is the MEC for Human Settlements at the Western Cape Provincial Government. Now, I think what's important for us to also help our listeners understand is how exactly it works. How does one get a, a house from the government and who exactly pays for that house? How does it work? Well, firstly, for you to get a house, you need to be on the housing demand database. What a municipality does is it determines a, a needs analysis in, in the specific boundaries in the city of Cape Town space. Uh, they then utilize this housing demand database, which is an expression of an individual's need for a housing opportunity. They create a 10 to 15 to 20 years project pipeline and ultimately then my department, they submitted them through to my department because we are the custodians of the human settlements uh, in the Western Cape. Yeah. We then submit that through to, to uh, the national department. Ultimately, you know, there are various others, other processes that plays a role. You know, you do get certain licenses in place and so forth. And if it's state-owned land, it's, it, it really makes it a lot easier because then the readiness, the readiness matrix which the national department utilizes is, is expedited at least because it's state-owned land so it costs you nothing to buy the land so you can actually create more opportunities and in a nutshell then ultimately we then get for in the city of cape town's case uh, i am the custodian of the hsdg grant which means i sign off on that specific business plan the city of cape town and all other materials in the in in the country get what is called the USDG grant, which means it's come, it comes from the national fiscus and it's allocated to various provinces according to the expression of their needs. And over the last 10 years, the Western Cape have continuously said that the need that, that, that the city is expressing in relation to the funding that we're getting through the HSDG grant and even the USDG grant is not sufficient. Uh, and that is, in a nutshell, the way that it works for us to fund actually human settlements development so that uh, there's a national housing code. It depicts the specific guidelines on on how uh, and, uh, and the criteria utilized to subsidize uh, individual for, for the first time in their life to own a, to own a land. There's a criteria which is set as the provincial minister. I adjust I adjusted the priority list last year already on specific. Uh, uh, green parcel projects to ensure that we really focus our housing demand database so that the correct beneficiary uh, then then gets identified for that housing opportunity. But we need to emphasize this grant is not rolled over, it's not allowed to roll over. But then once you get identified as a successful beneficiary in accordance 
with the, the, the housing allocation policy of province, which all, all municipalities, even the city, needs, uh, is aligned to ours, uh, then we, we ultimately you sign a contract with the state, uh, needs of sale, so to speak, because we can only then, then ensure that you, a specific uh, successful beneficiary, the, the grant is or the proportion of a grant related to your, to, to your specific allocation as a qualifying beneficiary and registered so that you can ever qualify in the future again because the HSDG grant and even the USDG grant which the city gets, you are only meant to benefit once as a state beneficiary. Thank you. I want to welcome now to the show also Malusi Boy. He's the City of Cape Town's Mayoral Committee member for Human Settlements. Malusi, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening and good evening to the listeners and also to our minister. Yeah, I mean, I should actually say to both of you, welcome back, because you've been on the show before. And now, of course, we are talking about calls from civil society that three plots of land, specifically military sites, which they claim are well-located and underused and also vacant, they are saying that the national government should release this to make space for what they say would be 67,000 low-income households in Cape Town. And they say this would, of course, address the city's need for housing. Malusi, you are at the city of Cape Town. How does this tie in with your plans and vision at the city? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, firstly, I must say, Ma, I was listening to my minister. I mean, he's very polite about the matter. But I want to be, I want to be very blunt. Because uh, one, the the issue of the the issue here at hand is that uh, the former mayor of the city of Cape Town, who is the minister of public works today, wrote a memo to uh, former president Jacob Zuma in 2014, requesting the sites uh, in question to be released to the city of Cape Town so as to unlock more than. Uh, 60,000 housing opportunities. And she left the city of Cape Town. She became the uh, Minister of Public Works. And then subsequently, I wrote her, I wrote to, uh, to the same department requesting the same uh, uh, land parcels in 2019. Now, that has not yielded results. Now, there are two things here, and which is a, a fundamental. One, is that when she wrote at the time, I would assume she was being sincere. But subsequently thereof, when I wrote to her, requesting the same land parcel that she requested previously, she was being unjust. And now depriving the citizens of the city of Cape Town an opportunity for them to access those uh, housing opportunities. And as you, as you have had the minister outlining the program of, of, of the province and also the city of Cape Town, that is a political will to make sure that the citizens of the city of Cape Town and also the Western Cape is to make sure that we unleash the housing opportunities that exist within this province. Now, but the biggest challenge is the land parcel in, with which we can be able to deliver those housing opportunities. The, what the minister did not, because as I was saying, he was being polite. The, the minister did not want to tell you that there's one of the uh, projects that have been identified in the during COVID, which is the Itemba Labs. 
and a, and a, a site which could yield more than 10,000 units. And the very same person, which is Patricia Delilly in this instance, has not released it to the province, nor city, nor HDA, nor human settlements uh, nationally, uh, because she wants to utilize that for political reasons when we get to elections next year. But where I'm trying to get at, at this particular point is that as a city of Cape Town, we are taken aback with her actions, and we feel that she has no sympathy for those that are vulnerable and the poor in our city of Cape Town and also in the in the province of the Western Cape. Okay. Let's take a quick ad break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. We need to put any political differences aside. All three spheres of government do own land. Two of the three have really come to the table. It's time that national government comes to the table. Let's now radically change and integrate our communities by making these parcels of land available and we can really change the lives of qualifying beneficiaries together. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. And that is the wrap from myself, Yazid Kamaldin. I'll be back, inshallah, next week for the last show of this year. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Assalamu alaikum.